to We Bought a Mic. Here we are. I'm your host, Ernest Calderon. I'm, uh, I guess you could say that I'm also a host. My name is Hunter Mobley. Oh, oh God. Oh, there goes the guitar. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, it's all, it's okay. It's, it's my guitar, so if I break it, it's fine. I am your host, Drew Dietzen. And who's this? We have a fourth person on the what? podcast. Who's that? We bought a person. Over here, we have our our buddy, our pal. Hey. Long-time our, friend uh, of the pod circle before it was a pod. Former Florida State yo-yo champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, 69th out. best yo-yoer in the world. At some point. Our mother, Brett Nemiroff. Hey. Mother? There he is. Those are real accolades. How you doing, Brett? I'm great, guys. Good to be here. Good, good. Happy good. to have you. Yeah. I know those uh, accolades are a little dated, but you'll mm. always be 69th in my heart. You know, there was, just for the folks out there, there was a period where us four were roommates. A year. Yeah. In yeah. fact. Um, you could say, like, it was the best great year of my, my life, life. And I'd like to personally yeah, thank Brett for uh, bringing to me the joys of The Office. Because I liked The Office before that year. But Brett, like, you're the one that showed us, like, oh, no, this is, like, a really important, like, good show. Yeah. I'm I'm absolutely obsessed. It's disgusting. (laughs) And now we're all obsessed. And now I'm on, like, about my 65th watch through or so. I mean, that year that we lived together, we probably watched through that whole show all nine seasons. Nine seasons. Yeah, we did it thrice. At least, yeah. We did it three times. And then we watched through Parks and Rec once or twice, too. Yeah, uh, it we was, we pretty much had no lives, and that was all a, we did was just watch endless television. Yeah, you know when you're in college and you just want to like stay inside <laughs> and just like watch stuff. That's what we did, and it was fun. It was a great year. It was one of the best years of my life. Yeah. Um. So anyway, how are we yeah. gonna how are we gonna start the pod? Do we We're, have any initial breaking news? We have a lot of stuff to get to yeah, today. It's a big episode. Give a quick rundown, including of all the our spots we're gonna hit our review of uh, Mother, the new Mother Aronofsky film. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about seeing Arcade Fire live, the Nathan for You, a celebration special. Oh, yeah. Um, plus lots more. But before we get to any of that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Emmys, which happened a week ago. Yeah. Okay. We had some cool winners, including Donald Glover winning for acting and directing Atlanta. So we walked away with two yeah. Emmys that night. And he deserved both of those. Yes. The directing and acting of that show is incredible. incredible. More so the directing, in my opinion. It has great, yeah. great, like, styled, interesting choices made Such a on cool the directing look. front. Um, but yeah, that was good. Uh, Aziz ended up winning one for Master of None. I think it was best writing of an episode. Yeah. With... Um, I keep forgetting her name. Jesus hey, you know Christ. what? I can tell you what didn't win that Emmy. Sean Spicer. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Leftovers got fucking shafted. Yeah, got screwed. The Sean again. Spicer bit was. I mean, did any none of us watch the Emmys no, live? Did we, we? I was working. We all didn't watch it live, yeah. and then we heard about the Spicer thing, and we were like, "Oh, good." Glad, yeah, glad I didn't watch it live. <laughs> that just kind of confirms the fact it's, that like all rich people, like all Hollywood people. They're not really that serious when it comes to attacking Washington. And, oh, yeah. Like, the like Trump a perfect image of modern leftism is James Corden kissing Sean Spicer on the cheek. Yeah. Like, it's that was bullshit. hilarious. That just was so bad. The fact that he was on and was like, oh, we're all friends here. Like, yeah. this is all funny. It was right? just, it's too easy to let him in on the joke. We're not going to get too political on the podcast, folks. Yeah. Just yeah, in case we I have mean... any freaking neo Nazis listening. We want to keep you, we want to retain you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Oh, this is a we bought a mic where we all take a knee during the national anthem. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm here to alienate some listeners, so get ready for that. Oh no, 
Uh, we Le- took a knee. Lena Waithe is the name of the girl that wrote the Thanksgiving episode of mm. Master of None, which is one of the best episodes of that show. Probably one of the best I think episodes. It's, the, it's definitely the best episode of the season. I've seen so yeah. far. I haven't actually finished Master of Yen- None yet because I was trying to take my time with it, mm. really enjoy it, especially after hearing an interview that uh, uh, Aziz did on the Bill Simmons podcast where he talks about how he churned through this second season. He spent a year and a half, over a year and a half of his life on this show, and it's out. And that's the problem with Netflix is that it's all out now. People binge through it in a day, and now people are already coming to him like, all right, so when uh, when's season three coming out? Yeah. And they, nobody appreciates yeah. that this took a huge chunk of his yeah. life. It's kind of the pinch, the uh, pitfall of binge ability, like yeah. the binge generation. You You get like a year's worth of work, and you're like, you finish it in a day, and you're like, okay, more. Um, but you know, that just kind of comes with the benefits of it, which I mean, the biggest of which is shows with an overarching narrative. It's a lot easier to tell a story. Like some shows that would be great to binge would be like breaking bad would be anything with any, like a big plot line over the course of a season is better viewed. If you can watch it at your leisure and you can watch a lot of it at once. Yeah. And that kind of just speaks to the way television is now where most shows are serialized and you can't really just jump into any episode you know like back in the day when there was like i love lucy or even golden girls or something like that or gilligan's island you know all these shows that were kind of the same story every episode and you always had the same character tropes like you knew what was going to happen with each character every episode because that was that was the character you know yeah, the it, it was just very predictable, and you could watch any episode and be satisfied and with what happened in that single half hour. There is still an insane amount of that as well. If you watch what's actually on television as opposed yeah. to streaming, like if you watch anything on CBS, there's not going to be much like big picture stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to be the same thing every week. Look at like shows like NCIS yeah. and stuff like that that just thrive off of having NCIS the same formula for here's, every, here's, every single episode. Here's every episode of NCIS. Uh, everyone's just there's okay intro cold open there's a murder like a navy murder like some kind of military murder and you're like oh whoa the military and then it goes <laughs> to the intro sequence which is really lame and then it cuts to the the office where they all work and they're all just messing around having a good time and then the one y- younger guy says something stupid that's when mark Harmon walks in and he slaps him in the back of the head and then the episode starts yeah <laughs> that's that is i just you don't have to watch that show anymore and then they're like yeah that's that's CSI Wrong. Miami. Close um, enough, though. Well, you know, whatever. But that was the same deal. Though. Cold <laughs> open, murder, uh, cut to David Caruso saying something about the murder over yeah. the dead body. Yeah, because it, there's shows that people just want to have in the background while they're chopping carrots. You know, they don't want to devote yeah. their whole attention to them. They they can't. Like, it's the, not that yeah. kind of show. That's that's something I've come kind of come to terms with lately. It's not necessarily a horrible thing if people are using it as a background show yeah like my parents are doing things when they watch tv so they can't watch like a really dense show like rick and morty or something right like they it, they would be lost to them they would be like oh i missed everything but then in a show like that you can just jump in like halfway through and you're like okay i can just follow along yeah exactly so it's on you watch it and you're not really paying attention but it's just there and you can you know you can kind of be involved because you can solve it without even paying full attention to it yeah. because it's pretty simple is is it necessary or is it more harmful when you have shows that just have a laugh track that are just telling people when to laugh that, as opposed to having really good writing. I mean, I would obviously, I would be on the side of it being harmful, but there are people, I mean, kind of like I said, if you're watching it in the background 
and you're not really paying attention, then maybe you want to know when to laugh. Maybe you don't exactly. Want, if yeah. you like, if you work every day really hard and you get home at eight p.m., you don't want to think. Yeah, you just want to wind down and watch some Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Mm. Oh so my god. There are people that it's Deal for, me. and it's fine that they like it. You and, know, we just don't. Yeah, and honestly, like Big Bang is one of those shows that has been recognized at the Emmys. And it's it, uh, Jim Parsons has won at least See, two or three Emmys for that portrayal. That's where I draw the line. That's where I'm I'm not tolerant of that because he won a bunch of Emmys over Steve Carell. Yeah, that is Carell never won an Emmy for no. Michael Scott. He got one Emmy. Oh, he did. Yeah. And What's which season? Uh, probably like two or three, an yeah. early season, and really? then. Either early or like four or five. I would guess maybe four. Four, yeah, I, four I think, is because that was when he got notoriety. Successful. But either way, and then he started. He got beat a bunch by Jim Parsons, and then um, the uh, bigger gay guy from Modern Family. Neither of which are transcendent performances. Performances, and I think Steve Carell's is. Well, I think that this leads into our whole like main thing. We kind of talked about it a little bit last week, just about how the Emmys are becoming more and more like the Oscars, where we all knew, even though none of us have ever watched all of The Handmaid's Tale, it was something that we knew like it's going to win Best Drama Series. Hulu made it so that they could win an Emmy yeah. for Best Drama yeah, Series. Yeah, they and wanted that recognition as a prestige network, and they actually beat Netflix to the punch of winning the the award for outstanding drama series you know netflix has been nominated and has won a lot of emmys the last two three years but Mm -hmm. they hadn't gotten the big prize and hulu beat them to it this will certainly certainly do wonders for hulu and and there's some subscriptions in the future it's a big deal I just, I don't, that this doesn't start a trend where we start to see like more Emmy bait shows coming out that are just, they're not the best thing on television that year, but they hit those like social issues. But Handmaid's is a good show. That's the thing. This, yeah, this is a a debate that like I have a side on, but what's better? A show that's made for a general audience that isn't really watching or a show that's made to win an award? I mean, as far as I've seen, the award like trying to earn shows are better. They're yeah. not the best shows on TV. But then you look at Veep and Veep. I mean, I I've, I haven't seen Veep, but from what I've heard, this newest season was just a big dip in quality from the other seasons. But it's still one. It's still one best comedy and uh, well, there Drive are plenty of shows. There are plenty of shows that, like, I mean, like everybody said that the Americans this past season was a big drip, dip in quality, and they didn't get recognized for the Emmys. Mm. And I think that's actually that's that's good that the Emmy is recognizing yeah. like they're not just giving legacy nominations to shows that don't really deserve yeah. it. That's what makes it so incredible that a show like Atlanta won in its very first season. It's such an original, very idea. well deserved. Yeah, extremely well deserved, but it's not something that you would traditionally think like, oh yeah, that's definitely going to win an Emmy. As far as Veep goes, I've seen a few seasons of it and I can't get the Emmy angle of it. I, it's a good show. It's not a show where you're like, it's not the best of the best. It's not a show where you're like, oh, like clapping, like, wow. Like it's a good show, period. That's it. So, but then on the other hand, you have the leftovers, which is a show that, you know, every single episode is just like, holy crap, this is the greatest shit I've ever seen. Not a single nomination. That's that's why people don't really care about award shows anymore. Well, it's, they're, they're it's very political too. In, in Hollywood, yeah. there's all of these things where it just depends on what connections you have and and what network, what the shows that the network choose to push to the voters. Yeah, you know, um, HBO didn't push Leftovers because they had Westworld. 
They didn't need to push. And Westworld didn't win anything. Yeah. They won, I think, some technical stuff on, like, the day before the Emmy, right. Emmys, where they do the technical yeah, awards but, and all that I mean, stuff. Who cares? It doesn't really mean But it's, it's very political. It, yeah, it, extremely. It, yeah. Yeah. And people are starting to realize that, and their viewership is uh, showing that, because they got beat out by whatever sitcom was on CBS that night. Yeah. Their ratings were that low that they got beat by, like, a, a decently rated sitcom. And it's kind of what we were talking about last week on the podcast, that... People don't need award shows in order to know what they should and shouldn't watch. Like they can just put, you know, click Netflix and scroll through and spend an hour like trying to decide. They can click anything and they'll find something. I there's mean, something for everyone. Yeah, exactly. There's something for everyone. I mean, the the Emmys are a good starting point. I'm sure a lot of people subscribe to Hulu because of the Emmys and are gonna check out The Handmaid's Tale and decide yeah. for themselves whether they like it or not. But there's just too much TV and you can't watch the Emmys and be like, oh, my God, like I got to add to my list of all of these things I have to watch. Like there's already so much television that even if all the shows that are on right now stopped airing, it would take you a considerable amount of time just to catch up on all the old TVs, the TV shows yeah. that you haven't seen. It'd take That's your whole life. Point. Like, yeah, there's, yeah, there's an unreal amount. And I think there's not a lot of there's not enough uh, weight put into just watching shows that have already started and ended because people want to be a part of the collective discussion. So with a show that's already going, you can like talk to people, mm-hmm. at least online or in real life about the show. Yeah. But there are so many shows like old HBO shows, even recent ones like Six Feet Under. They just weren't around during the internet age, so there wasn't, like, online discussion about it, but they're, like, some of the best shows of all time. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, Ernest and I were just talking about this, how I would love to dive into a show like The Sopranos. Like, I've been really wanting to watch yeah. The Sopranos, but it's like, I don't have time to watch all of The Sopranos. I need to catch up on stuff that's happening right now, so. Yeah, yeah. It's a, there's it's just not relevant. enough time. It's a content overload. Part of me wonders if it's kind of like the dot-com boom of, like, the early 2000s, where, like, what if it explodes and all of a sudden, like, people realize, oh, we don't really need all this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, either way, I mean, here is a lot on, on, we bought a mic. We, uh, we just like to tell you what we're enjoying. We're not here to tell you what you shouldn't, shouldn't watch. Except for our movie tastes. Listen to, go to see the movies that we recommend. Yeah. And Nathan for you. That's not debatable. You have to watch it. So on that note, let's get into what we've been watching. Okay. Um, let's start, (laughs) let's start with Nathan for you. Transition. Okay, good. (laughs) I... Nathan for you is a show that I hold near and dear to my soul. It is one of my top five favorite shows of all time. And that may surprise you if you're listening because it is, it gets consistently pretty low ratings on comedy central. It is not a super popular show among the comedy community though. It is revered. Uh, once you understand the show, you come, even if you don't like it, you kind of come to respect it because it's a very difficult show to produce and to pull off. Um, it, it requires ridiculous m- amounts of planning yeah, exactly. on, on the part of oh, Nathan and his team. Because we were going to talk about, because this week Nathan for You's fourth season started with a preamble, which was a one hour long celebration where they kind of visited old guests of the show because the show takes place in real life. But in order to understand that, you would have to understand the whole show. Yeah. So the so, basic premise of Nathan for You is Nathan Fielder is a man who goes around the L.A. California era area 
trying to help out small business owners. He's playing a yeah. character who's going to yeah, help he out is a, small he's business. He's playing a more severe version of himself. And essentially what he does, like imagine a show like Bar Rescue or something like that, or Gordon Ramsay's restaurant show where he, he wants to come into businesses and give them an idea to change it. God, I fucking love that show. <laughs> oh, yeah? Really? Yeah. He is good. but So that's the premise of the show is he's going to go in and fix their business. But the twist is it's actually a comedy show and – no one knows it except for Nathan and his team that they are giving this person the it's most... It's like a prank show almost. It's like the exactly. most ludicrous ideas, but like if you think about them in the most simplest sense, generally his ideas are like, well, yeah. I mean, that does solve the problem. Exactly. Like They're sort of walking this tightrope between like, it has to be a good enough idea that the business owner would agree to it, but it also has to be absurd enough that it would be funny to show on television. Right. Um, oftentimes, oftentimes the business owner will accept it purely because they're on camera and they want to, yeah. they want to keep going with that's exactly. a huge part of yeah, it. Yeah, That's what he's it's, messing with. Nathan is trying to push the line as far as he can. Yeah, He's trying to see what people are willing to put up with yeah. to be on TV. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time it has, as far as I, uh, categorize, there are four main comedic elements of the show, which is why it's hard to describe to people because you can't just call it a prank show. He is messing with them. But then he never pulls the curtain back on them. It's not like Candid Camera where they're like, hey, it was a prank. Yeah, and then ne- everyone's in on the joke yeah, and they have a they big laugh. They never tell no. anyone that it was a prank on them or that it was all a comedy show. Right. Like these people think that this guy is genuine in his attempts to fix their business and he's just an idiot. And he's another element of the comedy is his awkwardness. In every interaction he has with these business owners and people, he is trying to make it as uncomfortable as possible. And that is that's part of the game that he's playing. But if you like that kind of comedy, it's great. Uh, I've I've met people and I've showed people the show that could not watch it because it was so incredibly cringy. And that's yeah. un- that's understandable. Yeah, exactly. I don't blame those. It's people. uncomfortable. <laughs> but if you can just take kind of a step back and not, if you can just be like a little bit of a sociopath and watch the show, <laughs> like it it pays off in dividends. It is incredible what he's doing. Um, he has stated in interviews that he in, in real life is an awkward person. Uh, and so he just kind of plays into that on the show and he's just like, like, you know, he understands the, the importance of a silence and how awkward that can be to just not say anything because that's just how he is. So he'll just make it longer for the show and just watching people try to figure out what to do when they're on camera and just nothing's, Yeah, there's just so many dynamics happening that, it's an incredible social experiment type of show in a non-obnoxious YouTube way. In a very strange I mean, way. it's it's unlike anything else on television. Yeah, like there's nothing exactly. like Nathan for He's you. He's doing that. Uh part of the humor comes from the fact that every every plan he like submits to these people is completely absurd and they accept because of the pressure he's putting on them by having a camera crew on yeah. them and just trying to be like, No, I'm being serious, like let's do this. And so watching these plans get carried out like to their fullest extent is absolutely insane. He's manipulating reality. And at times he goes past that extent because they they have a plan of what they think the situation is, is going to play out as. You know, like yeah. they have an idea for what they're going to do with this small business and how the business owner is going to react and how Nathan is going to be able to manipulate yeah. this person. But oftentimes... There are things that happen that they can't possibly predict. They're writing the show on the fly. And a lot of the time, the best material just comes from people in real life just acting how they act. This is being weird. 
If you're going to talk about a specific episode, I don't think that's anything more apparent than in the uh, realtor episode. Yeah, that's where, a perfect one. The exorcism. Yeah, where, okay, they have like a simple enough idea where there's this realtor and they give her the idea of, all right, to set yourself apart from all the other realtors in this area, you can, we're going to say that you can guarantee that a house is ghost free. Yeah, because so they, he's, he's, he uses stats and stuff to pitch it to her because he's like, hey, half of people believe in ghosts. So yeah. it's a good idea. To, when he pitches it, she's like, oh, yeah, okay, we can do that. But then shit just escalates to a whole nother level whenever they, like, bring in psychics and yeah. all these people. And then they have to exercise the house. And yeah. the way that these people who run these businesses react to these situations is unlike anything yeah. else. He, it's, like, assembling people like this. And a lot of the time, if he needs someone to hire someone for something, like, he needed to hire an exorcist, right? Or he needed to hire a guy that could find that there were no ghosts in the house. So he just, guess what he did? He got on Craigslist and he found a guy who said he could do that. Yeah. That guy's going to be pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. So to just put that guy on TV is like two minutes and of it's, gold. And it's unclear how these, how much these individuals are aware of what Nathan is going for. Yeah. How much they're trying to play up their whole act just because they're on TV. Like you don't really know how crazy they are or, or yeah. how in on the joke they are, but yeah. It, all these varying levels of just weirdness yeah, is what makes the show very special. There's this Tim and Eric model of using real people to develop comedy within the show. Exactly. But I also think it's a testament to Nathan as an actor and being able to keep himself together during these absolutely absurd situations mm. and still being able to ask these really awkward questions and yeah. pull the comedy out of people. It's like you, anyone who watches it is like, I couldn't do that. Like you, it's so. I mean, he it. said that he's had trouble yeah. a lot of times keeping it together there and were, not there laughing. Are, there are two or three episodes where you could see him smiling because yeah. what's happening in front of him is so, so fucking incredible. Yeah. But overall, he is so he is so straight faced in his delivery of these absolutely ridiculous premises to people, and that's what it has to be like. Yeah. Um, so so the, this 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 is Nathan for you on Comedy Central. And now season four is about to premiere. And there was a one hour special that just aired on Thursday. And basically it took a lot of the characters that we've been, you know, talking about and, and sort of referencing and revisited them because the show yeah. hasn't been on the air for two years now. So it's a perfect time to kind of go back and see if these business ideas worked yeah. and how they played out. Or just you just want to see the people again because the the sorts of people that he finds among his quest is unbelievable. Yeah, just to see what they're up to. It's yeah, it's just fascinating. Um and in the as far as like the special goes, that that kind of introduces one of the biggest things he does that doesn't get talked about enough is the show is a genre parody show of reality TV Absolutely. shows. It's mm. so there's so much parody in the show. Um, and that kind of plays off of what you said about it's produced by Absolutely Productions, which is Tim Heidecker of Tim and Eric's production company. He is well versed in genre parody. Yeah, they invented a lot of this um, yeah, approach. They, they did a lot of like 90s parody. They did a lot of like in, incorporating real people to do like ridiculous things. But still having respect for those people. Yeah, exactly. It's not just entirely making fun of them. But um, either way, it's a it's a giant parody. Every single part of this show, they're... There is voiceover, like the premise of it, the editing, the graphics of it, the voiceover, the stock music that he uses. Every single detail, like it gets jokes out of making fun of like reality shows. The music switches he'll do where it turns to really dark at a certain point. Like we all recognize almost the exact music he's like using because yeah. it's been on 
top chef or bar rescue or whatever. At this point in the show, his timing has gotten so refined that every little detail, I lose my shit. Like, I, I start laughing at every it's, single little tiny thing yeah, Nathan like, does. We can talk about it all you want, but if you watch it, you'll understand. Like, whether or not you really like it, you'll, like, you'll watch it and you will scream at your TV yeah. because of what he's doing. It is so, so meticulous. It makes your screen, skin crawl in like the best way where it's just like, oh, I just can't believe that he pulled this off. Yeah, like he is manipulating the people on the show in a way that I honestly can't believe. Like it's unbelievable the, yeah. what he is able to accomplish yeah. just by just by pushing these people to – just be weird. And they're just willing to go with it because yeah. people will do anything to get famous and exactly. be on TV. Yeah. And it's, they just feel like, well, this guy's a TV host, so who am I to say no to him? Kind of. It's just a big social construct that he's taking advantage of, kind of, that people when they're when they're on TV, they're not gonna be like, Hey, no, we can't do that. Yeah, it's it's beyond experimental yeah. TV. It's 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 incredible. So original on so many levels and one of the greatest I, I want to call it a work of art, but it's it's it so is. much more than that. Like, it's so entertaining and it's like transcendental. It is. Yeah. And one thing you said earlier made me laugh You when you called these people that are on the show characters. Yeah. Because that's kind of what he's doing is he's making them characters in a narrative that they don't know that they're in. Because I'll, I'm sure some of them. Well, a lot. Of, I mean, there are some that end up not like they don't know the extent of it. Yeah. But, but they get that he's fucking with them. Yeah. Some of them do. But. There's this uh, subdued narrative throughout the entire show of how Nathan, the character, is very, uh, he's lonely and he's trying to connect with people and he's trying to be likable and find love. There's so many good episodes that are based off that premise. There's one called The Hunk where he literally, in in terms of parody, he creates an entire fake uh, bachelor style dating show where he dates a bunch of women in a house at once. And then, like, once it's just so incredible because all these women want to plug something. Um, yeah, they're, they signed on to this gig because they live in LA and they want to be famous. Yeah. Like, most of the people on this show, that's what they want to do. You know, they're living in, in LA and California yeah. to try to make it big. And, and Nathan comes to them with this. <laughs> show like hey you want to be on tv and they're like yeah well, of yeah. course <laughs> and, they think, and so they think it's like the bachelor and they think they're going to get to plug their country music career or whatever and then he ends up being the most awkward human they've ever met and like they're trying to connect with him and he just like can't even like bring himself to kiss them when they're trying to kiss him it is it's skin crawlingly good and then he just once he f- is satisfied with the fact that he's like connected with these women he just ends the show he's like hey so i'm i'm good it's over yeah and <laughs> he got over his fear of speaking to women and yeah, that's all he he's wanted like, yeah it's all good and then the the whole that entire show he created is just done yeah so now season 4 is about to uh premiere this was just like a little refresher episode since it's been you know off the air for 2 years but he's back um he's coming in hot with, uh, you know, six, I think six half hour episodes and then a two hour finale. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he said. The two hour finale is from the previews. You can pretty much surmise. It's going to be about the Bill Gates impersonator, which he's used multiple times on the show because this guy is the worst Bill Gates impersonator <laughs> you've ever seen. And apparently they were just kind of like shooting stuff with him over the season. And he said something that made them think, oh, we can make a whole thing about that. Like a full length, like a feature length. It was something about his like lost love or something like that. And so it's going to be two hours of Nathan trying to help him find his lost love. Yeah. 
And I'm so that's that's what we're assuming just from the trailer. I'm so excited. But for that. we're I'm sure we're in for a lot of surprises this season. You know, Nathan knows yeah. that his fans are always looking to see how he's gonna top himself. And every season he manages to surprise us with something big and and just raising the stakes of what yeah. this show can do and how far he can take it. He yeah, he is He's very ambitious. Like the, I mean, just the concept of the show is ambitious to do to mix reality and fiction like yeah. seamlessly. Oh my it's god! So incredibly difficult. I see him definitely taking it to the next level with this season of being so meta. Where in that in that Bachelorette style episode, the host of the show yeah. is brought back to host the celebration. Yeah, put him na- back in this awkward situation where he was originally. Definitely. Yeah, he his name's Anthony Napoli. He and he was hosting this bachelor show thinking, Oh, I got a steady gig and then like Nathan's like, No, the show's over. So he and Nathan the whole time was shit talking this guy as part of a, a bit about Nathan's loneliness. And then he just brings him back because he's paying him, so he hires him again to host the special. And it's just so incredibly uncomfortable and awkward because the guy's not good, first of all. That's why he doesn't get gigs. But it's it's just it's reaching a level of meta that I appreciate more than anything. Like where he's bringing back people that we already know. I love that. All right. Any any other thoughts on Nathan for you guys? Um, I have a I have a transition for you guys. Oh no. You know what? Uh, most of the people who come on Nathan for you are thinking. Oh is, uh, oh mother. <laughs> God make me famous. If you can't, <laughs> just make it painless. <laughs> Seamless transition into what we've been going to. We we watched it. We watched a live concert, a musical performance on stage. Arcade Fire! Which is actually one of the reasons why this podcast is coming to you late this week. Because we attended the Everything Now Infinite Content, Infinitely Content, Hashtag uh, everything now world emoji hashtag fidget spinners yeah arcade fire friend of the podcast of course yeah win yeah, butler win. at dj windows 98 we ball together so we went to tampa to see the show and i was kind of in disbelief that it was real you know it, <laughs> it kind of came together last minute and uh, arcade fire is one of the bands i've always wanted to see live like yeah, they're literally they were- like I number one yeah it's just like our top bands that we wanted to see yeah never gotten a chance it. to see them until now and i was just like waiting for something to go wrong because it didn't feel real but once we were there once we were in the venue and i saw them setting up the stage i was like oh okay so this is real this is happening we're, we're gonna see arcade fire and what followed was one of if not the best concert i've ever seen it was definitely in my top three, top yeah. five shows that what, I've ever been to. What a show. It was, okay, so to set Incredible. up how they were actually set up. This is a show that Ernest, Brett, and I went to. Sorry, Drew. Um, but <clears throat> oh, that's cool. they that's have fine. a stage in the middle of the general admission uh, floor where the stage rotates around. And there's about like nine members or so in Arcade yeah, Fire. Yeah, there's like 65 members. Yeah, they keep growing Yeah, every second. Um, but yeah, there's all these people on stage and you see them, the stage rotating around. So you see all of the members at different times and they'll like hop on different instruments and stuff like that. They're one of the most musically talented groups that I've ever listened to, or especially seen live just in the way that they can split together. But 
it was such an incredible crowd interaction that they had. There were multiple points where different members of the band would get down onto the floor and dance with people around the around the uh, stage. Yeah, I, th- I think was... the circular setup really added to the experience because it spread out the crowd in a way that you were able to kind of everyone just had access to each side of the stage and and the band played on each of the four sides equally. So it kind of it kind of made a lot more room. It, it was like a boxing ring setup, and they even entered the stage uh, to a boxing like announcement. You know, you really get the feel that Arcade Fire are these seasoned performers that know exactly what they're doing. Every aspect of the show was extremely planned out. Having this stage right in the middle made it so everybody around them had room to dance. It was the most cathartic experience That's waiting really cool. waiting yeah. for so many years we danced to hear this band. so much. Yeah, no, dude, that was the best part about seeing them is when you go to so many different shows, especially in like a general admission floor area because it's no real assigned seats, you're very like smushed together, but it was very spacious and that we could really just jam out and dance and at the same time when it was more of a ballad setup, we could kind of get close together and just kind of scream our hearts out. It was beautiful. So getting more specifically into the music, in, into the different albums, into their different projects, I think the big takeaway is that I don't think anybody could possibly leave that show without having a much greater appreciation for uh, Neon Bible, one of the more underrated uh, absolutely. projects. See, yeah. I, yeah, I like Neon Bible more than the critics seem to. It gets pretty bad critical. It's definitely their most underrated album. Yeah, I mean, I... Like, going into that show, I really thought Neon Bible was their weakest album, but looking back through mm-hmm. the set list, they played the second most amount of songs to Neon Bible wow. as a bit, to Everything Now, the tour that they're on yeah. right now. And seeing those songs live and how much emotion and heart was into them, it shook me. Yeah. It, like, and the crowd really was really into me. them, too. Oh, yeah. People you could tell how many how many diehard fans were there like that had been wanting to see Arcade Fire. Because what was so special about it is that... Arcade Fire, they don't really tour a whole lot. And when they do tour, I mean, they're a Canadian band, so they don't really come to Florida very often. Right. So that's what made seeing them... It was special. It was yeah. extremely And when even acknowledged, like, we've been waiting to come to Florida for a long time. Like, sorry we took so long. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Brett, you're the really, honestly, the person that would, like, got me to get really into Arcade Fire. I was... Like, I had heard their stuff before, but I hadn't actually, like, you know, put big over-ear headphones on and just listened through and through all the albums. Uh, and they became one of my top five favorite bands of all time. They're so talented. That. So I want to ask you, where would you, like, how would you go about listening to it if you want to get into Arcade Fire? If you want to get into Arcade Fire, I think easily the place where you need to start is Funeral. Yeah, that's I would agree with that. Their first album, their, their first release, and it's for, for and that's I that would have my vote for the best first release of a band ever. It's unbelievable, front how, to back, how, every track. Yeah, how fully developed their sound is with their first album. That thematically gives you an idea of what Arcade Fire stands for and where their inspiration comes from. Going from being youthful and moving into adulthood and and becoming more mature, and then if you listen to the. Uh, Grammy award-winning suburbs. After that, I think mm. that's that's the that's, best yeah. That's that's pretty. I mean, I love suburbs. I think uh, suburbs is probably my favorite Arcade Fire album. I mean, Funeral has the least fat on it of any Arcade Fire album. It's just totally tight, yeah. and everything on that album, like every song, is a banger. But just the story that's told in Suburbs 
is really beautiful. Yeah. And just seeing the suburbs live, it it made me tear up a little bit. God like seeing it. it live. Would you say it's a sprawling story that okay. it tells? Honestly, sprawling. Is it sprawling parentheses mountains? Um, <laughs> that song though, sprawl two mountains. One of the best show uh, songs of the whole show. Oh yeah, it was definitely. so good. Like such a dancey song. I mean, the whole show was dancey, but I just remember that song. Like so many colors and and the disco ball mm-hmm. coming down and everyone just vibing like crazy. Um, it was a highlight of seeing, the night for uh, sure. I think seeing the biggest highlight for me was seeing Suburbs into Ready to Ready Start, to start. Wow. which was how oh, how Suburbs the album goes. Fuck. And that that transition, the album is amazing, but seeing it live is just incredible. So cathartic. This it's is pissing so me beautiful. off right now. I'm so mad that I didn't have the money to go see this. And now can we can we quickly talk about the moment that I had with Regine yeah, so and the crowd? After, uh, from Suburbs to Ready to Start and Sprawl, uh, they went right into Reflector. And I really think that this was my favorite song of the whole show because not only was the David Bowie refrain highlighted by a David Bowie like digital ghost mm-hmm. in the screen, I was losing my shit seeing that. <laughs> yeah. But Regine Butler went into the crowd and danced right in front of us. And Brett got a special moment with I, her. I definitely had a moment with her. I danced with her. I immediately texted my girlfriend. Hey, I had a moment with Regine. She goes, what the hell are you talking about? Who is Regine? Cleared it up later, but that was, that definitely felt like the culmination of these years of listening. To so what kind of moment are you talking about? Like what happened? So she's dancing around, like they cleared a path for her in the yeah. crowd and she's following this path, around like dancing, stage. like, you know, moving along, looking at people. And Brett was just like right there, like right in front of her. And she just kind of like lingered a little bit. And they just like danced with each other, like right in front of each other. And I was just like right behind Brett, like watching this. That's incredible. And I couldn't believe it. I was in shock of what was going on in front of me. It was incredible. <laughs> I, I looked I looked back at Ernest like, did you just see what Yeah, I was I was like, holy fuck, That's so dude. Cool. <laughs> and then later and on And then I had a moment with Wynn Butler later on in the show. In the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> Sucked his dick. Um <laughs> No, but uh, there there was a different point uh, in the show when uh, they played a song off their new album, We Don't Deserve Love. It was which, like the encore kind of coming. Yeah, yeah. which uh, for this song, Wim Butler got into the crowd and the lyrics were posted on the screen and he sang it like karaoke style. Mm. And as he was doing this, like the line, we were at a perfect spot in this crowd. It ended up like we... When Butler walks right in, in front of me, I have a video that's him just like walking right by me and us just like singing he's together. He's so damn tall. Yeah. I told you guys that he's good at basketball. He's so Do you tall. believe me now? Yeah, I believe He's you. really good at basketball. He's a, he's a perennial NBA celebrity all-star game yeah. participant. He, yeah, always, he always puts up like 10 points, 10 rebounds and doesn't win MVP because either Kevin Hart or Justin Bieber wins MVP. Because yeah. yeah. they're like, snubbed. oh, Kevin Hart's so cute. He got two points. <laughs> yeah, good for exactly. him. But overall, I was so happy that we were able to go to this. I, I was so overjoyed, like overcome with, with, with joy of seeing this band live. Like I couldn't believe it. And I had such a good time. Just every song, every moment. It was truly a religious experience, like seeing it live. Like it was close to it. (laughs) I mean, 
as a non-religious person, seeing a band that you love live and having that ex- live experience is kind of the closest thing to a connection that's beyond words or explaining. Like seeing something live that you can truly, you feel, you have this out-of-body experience where you feel like you're hearing something that's bigger than you. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can relate to that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and Arcade Fire just does such a good job of uh, not only doing justice to their recorded material and, and elevating it for a live setting, but also connecting with the energy of the crowd. I mean, there's a lot of bands that, that play live shows that, you know, play their songs very, very well, but they're not that concerned with connecting with the energy of the mm-hmm. crowd. They're more just like trying to play the songs very well and not fuck up. Arcade Fire, you know, I could nitpick the sound quality. Like there's a lot of people on stage and, they weren't all balanced and mixed perfectly. Like it wasn't a perfectly sounding set, but there was so much energy and passion and emotion from all of these band members that you kind of overlook all of that and you just go with it because the energy of the show is so intense and so grand yeah, that that's, you transcend it. That's what Arcade Fire kind of brings to the table in terms of live shows. I've seen like on the MTV Live Network, I've just watched through entire concerts by them because they're so, everything might not be perfect, but they give a fuck. And a lot of yeah. acts, a lot of bands or artists do not really care when they're doing a live show. Because that's not, yeah. you know, they care more about what the studio And I'm sure is. Tampa was probably one of their you know oh, yeah, least important yeah. sets of the whole tour they're, they're slumming it in tampa yeah and, and they, they still, still brought did it. it yeah exactly they exactly re- like when butler really gives a fuck about his music you can nitpick it for being like i've heard i've listened to reviews where they, they call it like kind of simplistic or whatever but he is passionate yeah. in his music. and honestly i i like everything now the album more after seeing them live yeah, because, there are certain songs like Electric Blue, especially yeah. after yeah. hearing it live and seeing uh, Regine sing that song live. It has a whole new appreciation yeah, for me. Exactly. Like, they'll like, bring they'll bring up certain social issues and you can tell that the set list was catered to those social issues. Right. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of people dismissed. I know I did d- dismissed everything now as being a very shallow record because that's kind of the point of it. They're trying to say that, you know, they're selling out to the system and to capitalism and just this whole dystopic um, tone. And listening to the album, you just get the idea that they're like not putting forth their their best album, but that's the point of it. But then seeing it live, it's just arcade fire. Mm -hmm. Like it's just good fucking music, you know? really consider it being worse than any of their songs like one of the things i mentioned when we left the show is that arcade fire is able to give each project a distinct feel and look and and just feeling when you're listening to them but in the context of the set list they all flow together and they're able to you know bring together all of these different albums and songs in a very cohesive way that just Mm -hmm. sounds like arcade fire yeah, they do some. They do a job that uh, most bands can't find the balance of, which is making each album sound distinct without sounding like you're changing bands. Yeah, they each have their own sound and feel to them, and you can hear a song and pick apart which album it fits onto. Oh yeah, but definitely. 
it all sounds like arcade fire. It doesn't sound like you're listening to something and you're yeah. like, are they like trying to be a new band or something yeah. like that? Yeah, there are a lot of acts that update to whatever is like yeah. good in that moment. I'm talking to you, Jason Derulo. I know you listen to our Jason podcast. Derulo. <laughs> um, but enemy yeah. of the pod. <laughs> yeah, Archie. Yeah. Him and Rachel Ray so yeah. far are enemies. But Can we yeah, put Chris they Brown don't, on that list. They don't. Sure. Okay. <laughs> they don't change to like be to update for modern times. They change just because their sound is changing. Yeah. Um, it's all very organic. Like all their evolution is just like they changed. It's yeah. not like they're trying to fit anything. I'm excited to see where Arcade Fire goes after this. You know, they yeah. are everything now marks a really very interesting point in their career where it's sort of a culmination of where their success has gotten them and where they're at in terms of fame mm. and just the trajectory of 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 their sound and their themes and their lyricism and all this. So I'm. I'm looking forward to what's next. They, they really need to ask themselves what's important to them. Because every project prior, you could really tell that what they're thinking about comes through in the lyrics and in the music. So what's going to be going through their heads in the future? And how, how is that going to translate into the music? Well, when and uh, Regine just had their first child, uh, I think just shortly after Reflector, I think that's one of the reasons why there's such a long absence uh, of music in between because reflector came out in 2013 now everything came out and came out in 2017 four years and i hope that we don't have to wait another four years scare next we might fire project we might i mean i respect them as human beings like they want to go home and (laughs) take care of their newborn child or four years old at this point but still um so any other thoughts yeah well Hunter, you had a movie you saw today you wanted to talk about. Yes. Um, I actually I just came from the theater right after, uh, right before we did this podcast. Oh, really quick, Hunter's unlock, like, little pattern he does to unlock his phone is half of a swastika. I also noticed that. <laughs> okay, good. For the record. Yeah, that's what it is. It's not an H or anything Are like that. Are you a Trump it's... supporter? Yes. <laughs> what I've been watching is <laughs> Trump. Is Paul Joseph watching YouTube videos? <laughs> Okay, but uh, this speaks into uh, how we were, or how I was saying that seeing Arcade Fire Live was like a religious experience. I just came from a movie called Lucky, which is Harry Dean Stanton's final f- performance. It's uh, directed by John Carroll Lynch. Uh, it's his directorial debut. He's in a bunch of other movies before this. It's notably recently, I guess, The Founder was his last big movie that he was in. Um, he was also in like Shutter Island and a couple other things, but... Harry Dean Stanton plays a 90-year-old atheist who's, like, coming to terms with his life and his existence. And he lives in this uh, very small desert town and set in New Mexico, maybe, something like that. Very small town, and he just lives by himself. And it really has this battling between what's the difference between being alone and being lonely and... Uh, I will say one of my favorite parts in the film was a uh, unexpectedly for me David Lynch is actually in this movie. Oh fuck! Cue sound effect. <laughs> but David Lynch gives this monologue. There are a couple monol incredible monologues throughout this movie, but David Lynch gives a monologue which went from making me laugh out loud to making me cry, which is never happens in a movie that like something like that happens but this whole movie it's extremely low budget and it's all about the dialogue and these characters that are in this world and the way that they interact with harry dean stanton's character because the whole movie is set through his eyes as just this really old man who just like 
chain smokes and goes to bars every day and he drinks a bunch of milk and stuff and everybody's like well i mean why stop smoking at this point like if you're gonna die of cancer <laughs> you would have died by now yeah. so just like fuck it just enjoy the rest of your life by the way harry dean stan died 10 days ago yeah we should say this is this is his final film his final film yeah. and that's what made it like so amazing is that you're watching this movie and he's playing a character but it's really like I feel like he's talking about himself and his own life while doing this role, and I think it has the best ending to a character to an actor's career that I've ever seen. It reminded me a lot of Black Star, actually. For I was David about Bailey to say Project. it's kind of like Bowie, where he's like, like he was aware yeah, that yeah. his life no, was ending. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that kind of a thing where like you can tell like he knows that he's going to die soon, and he is making this project as basically a send off, just saying like. I've come to terms with my life. I'm happy with the decisions that I've made and yeah. who I've become as a person. And it's the movie ends with him just walking up to, this isn't really a spoiler because it's a movie about the dialogue. It's not really about plot or anything like that, but he's looking at this giant cactus, which has outlived him and which will go on to live far beyond whenever he's dead. And he just looks at the camera and smiles and walks away. <laughs> and it, it it made me tear up like Whoa. it was really it was really heart wrenching just to watch because it's just this look of and you can tell it's really genuine this acceptance that he's happy with his life and who he's become and it's it's really touching I think it's probably gonna be it's definitely gonna be my top ten movies of the year possibly my top five just wow. in the way oh that it gosh. affected me wow I cannot recommend it enough i was lucky enough to see it it was a one-time showing at the local art house theater for national art house day which by the way i don't know if you guys knew this today is national art house film day hey happy national art house film day guys yeah so uh it's uh, i know it's coming out um this weekend in like new york and la i don't know if it'll ever get a wide release but i'm hoping that it'll be a thing that shows up on netflix or amazon prime or something Mm -hmm. especially just since it is harry dean stanton's final project yeah it'll get that attention i really hope that it does because it is it is incredible and it's really do you think it's good enough to maybe get awards recognition maybe like a posthumous nomination or something like that i don't know if it will quite reach that level just because it's only it's a very short movie it's only 88 minutes long um, and there's really not a true beginning, middle, and end to it. But what I appreciate the most, and it's really impressive, is um, I don't think that he was uh, the writer of Lucky, but John Carroll Lynch, in his debut directing performance, for to just direct a movie that's just all about dialogue, and there's no true like Plot. beginning, middle, and end to it. It's just about this one character. This one really old character is just coming to terms with his life. It's really really it's it's just it's breathtaking just to watch it all and i i'm really excited i want to see what he does next it made me really happy just to see Um, what he could do i mean speaking of like posthumous recognition i'm on his imdb right now he is the fourth most looked at person on imdb right now wow it's i mean it's because of his death but he spent a large part of his career as a character yeah so he he was in a lot of stuff yeah so it's just you know it's a general good thing that he's getting recognition all right, we are running a little long, so let's move this right along. Let's talk about r- the new episode of Rick and Morty. Um, it was it's called Morty's Mind Blowers, yes, and it's what they did this year instead of 
uh, interdimensional cable. Yes. Which they directly acknowledge. Yeah, yeah. they do. They say Rick to, the says camera. It to the camera. But yeah, so it's done in place of the most beloved tradition in the show, which they said they were going planning on doing every single year. So you're going into the episode thinking, I hope it's really good. Why do you think they changed it up? I, that's a good question. I think maybe they were feeling the pressure of how hard it is to be funny when you're improvising, like I mean, being recorded improvising. It might be something like that, or maybe someone just had the idea. The thing is, the premise of the episode is that they're doing a clip show episode, but with clips that have not been shown before, yeah. which Dan Harmon has explored before in Community. He did, he did the exact same thing. And in Rick and Morty, he did the exact same thing in the episode where the parasites infect all their memories and implant right. memories. Yeah, that was that was a clip show episode, exactly. too, pretty much. It was a clip show where you, didn't ha- you hadn't seen any of the clips yeah. before. So they've done this before... So the premise of it was already kind of shaking me because I was like, well, they've yeah. done that. Well, Total Recall is a better episode than this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a better episode. And the interdimensional cables are both like, especially the first one is an instant classic where you're like, that's just right. good. So this episode, I w- you know, if they're going to replace it with something, you, you know, it kind of follows the old thing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Why'd they fix it? Why? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like the reason why they wanted to change it was they wanted to do something new and different. And I, I really, I like this episode. I don't. It's definitely not my favorite of the new season or anything like that. But I think that it was really good and original how they went about doing it because it does tell a really good story and it sets you in a situation that you've never really been before. Which is this is the closest thing to a bottle episode that Rick and Morty has ever done. It's literally just Rick and Morty just in this room together and. They, I mean, this is very basic, like plot set up for the of uh, for the show, for this episode. But um, they lose all of their memories, and the way that they gain them back is they have to insert all of these memories which were removed in the past, in order to like learn why they're in this situation, how yeah. to get them out of it. So that that is what it provides. Is it does give some more depth into the characters where it shows you things that like yo Rick did some really fucked up shit to Morty, like a lot of horrible shit has happened to Morty. We already kind of knew that. Yeah. yeah. I wish um, they I wish they did more with that of them problem solving through the memories. I yeah, think it would have been a better episode. Yeah, there were just I don't know, I had a lot of issues where it was like this is like good. Like I'm of course I'm glad I watched it, but it could have been better. Yeah. It was I was disappointed by it. Even like after the last episode which had so much density and depth to it, like I would have been so excited for an interdimensional cable episode to kind of just refresh your palate and just be like a kind of relaxing episode. And you just didn't really, I mean, it had some good moments, but it wasn't hilarious. It was funny. Yeah. It just, it was not very remarkable in my opinion. Kind of forgettable. Yeah. You know, it it Um, just kind of came and went. Yeah. They replaced the best, the most uh, beloved like episode of every season was something that was less than. So overall, I didn't really think yeah. it was worth and doing. They, they just confirmed that they're not going to do an interdimensional cable episode this season. So it's yeah. like, oh, well, I was expecting one and now we're not getting it. Yeah. And this is good, but not as good. It's not as good as the first two interdimensional yeah. Yeah. And cable even, episodes. Like, they even, you get like a second of interdimensional cable at the end where it's like people hunting houses, like shooting and killing houses. And it's like house hunters. Yeah. Why not just give me an episode of that? That's yeah. funny. Come on. Or or the the little snippet, the half second snippet of uh, Morty like having a musical number with Mr. Poopy Butthole. Yeah. yeah. I would have wanted a whole episode of that. Yeah. There were, I don't, yeah. 
Well, I, I would like to bring up my, my favorite moment of, the, moment of the episode, which is Morty standing on perfect level. Oh, oh my, that I was thought, great. That, that was, was by far the best episode. Yeah, it's essentially Rick is like, oh, you think that's really level? Because he's using, he's using like a level with the bubble on it. Yeah. Like, Your no, caveman no. eye. Yeah, so then he constructs a perfect level and Morty like stands in it and he can't like deal with real life outside yeah. of perfect Everything level. is crooked. Yeah, so Rick has to <laughs> erase it. That was a great it ma- it ma- right. it re- It's funny and it makes sense that Rick would want to remove that memory from his head yeah, because Morty couldn't go on living. Yeah, because it's like a funny, stupid thing where he's like, I can't live yeah. without being perfect level. Like, that was really funny. That or, was a good moment. Or when Rick uh, says that they're taking something for granted. Oh, and yeah. he thinks that's the correct term <laughs> yeah. instead of yeah. taking it for granted. Was, yeah, it had it had good moments, definitely. It was just overall I was uh, disappointed. Yeah. Um, All right. Uh, so that's Rick and Morty, episode eight. We got two more this season before we got to wait another year and yeah. a half. Yeah. So now... Anything we should, else we've been watching um, before we take really. a break? Just real, real quick, I want to talk about... Uh, Another movie. We just talked about Close Encounters a week or two ago. Yeah. About how we saw that in theaters. Another Spielberg film that was playing in theaters for its 35th year anniversary that I just saw was E.T. What's, um, what does that stand for? Uh, have you ever heard of the Katy Perry song, Extraterrestrial? Oh, featuring Kanye West? I thought it stood for, like, Evan Thomas. Yeah. Evan okay. Thompson. Um, no, after seeing E.T. in theaters... It was really, really incredible Magical. seeing this movie. Like it was, it's one thing now to just go home and watch this movie, but I tried to when watching this film in the theaters put myself in the position of people in 1982. Yeah, like just watching er- this movie for the first <laughs> Did time. Did you try to erase your memory of every movie past then? Yeah, and only have the context of before. Then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I did a, a Morty uh, a mind yeah, you eraser. Yeah, you did a mind blower. blower. Yeah. Quick no, mind blower. But uh, going into that movie, like the way that it's incredibly well put together, how if you know nothing about this film, you go in, you watch the first 15 minutes and you're like, is this like a horror movie about this alien like taking over? And it's just such a great story about kids and youth and Oh, Drew just Drew just got up and left. Um, he didn't. He, I don't think he's ever seen ET before. He didn't want spoilers. <laughs> he doesn't know what ET stands yeah. for. <laughs> but yeah, I after seeing that movie in theaters, it made me really want to rethink my list of my top ten movies of all time because I think that movie belongs in it's there. It's such a classic. It's incredible. The score in that movie is da, da, every time da, 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 I teared up about three different times in the film. Like it really just hits me every time that you see him interact with the humans and whenever the bikes go off the cliff and yeah. they just fly away. It just looks away. like magic. Like Spielberg is the it's, cinematic game changer. Oh boy. Um, but it's amazing. Like how much of that movie still looks really, really good. Most like of there's it's practical. There's practical one or effects, two. Yeah. There's one or two shots where you're like, okay, that's clearly a green screen behind them, especially when they're like pedaling away, and yeah. it's like, <laughs> oh boy, how's this happening right now? But like, other than that, it looks amazing. It looks so good, and it's just it's such a great story. Very similar in the vein of uh, Close Encounters, where it's just this story about communication with a life form, and it just. It really has this really cool concept of, because watching it as a child, I always remembered the adults as being these evil figures, and they're really not. They're just nat- they're scientists. They yeah. react into the way that a normal 
scientists would whenever an alien showed up, which is we have to capture this thing and do experiments on it and all this stuff. And from the viewpoint of a child, it's like, no, this is a living being. Like, yeah. This isn't just an experiment for you to test on and everything. Hey, guys. What's up? Beautiful film. Oh, you missed all the spoilers uh, yeah. for E.T. Luckily oh, for rats. You. I know we're about to go on a break, but I just took the longest piss of my life. <laughs> it was only like 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. I have a tiny bladder. Yeah. So that's E.T. 35th anniversary. Um, before we take a break, I did want to mention I earlier we talked about how much TV there is and how it's impossible to watch everything. So, you know, we're not here to recommend like the must watch TV shows like we could have a whole episode where we try to argue what you should and shouldn't watch because mm-hmm. we all watch different stuff and watch we don't have young time to Sheldon. Oh my God. Kill me. We have time to watch just a couple of things. We can't possibly yeah. watch everything. It would require a full exactly. full time job almost. Yeah. But I did want to say that I've been enjoying the newest season of You're the Worst on FXX. That's a good show. I yeah, like it. it's it's season four. It's a show that's able to stay fresh, uh, even though it's a very simple premise about just like shitty people yeah. living in LA, which exactly. is like half the shows yeah. on right now. It's, it's a it's a very dark comedy. It gets it's kind of like almost like a real live action version of BoJack Horseman. Yeah, it really, really is. It, it really is. It's a rich creative type living in a house and having, you know, a circle of people around him. All but creative. He's, he's just very depressed and alcoholic. Yeah, but it's hilarious and, you know, honest and emotional yeah. and it's able to stay funny while tackling these very serious topics like depression and PTSD and, you know, loneliness and all, all these very human emotions that your average funny sitcom is never going to yeah. really touch on. And it does it very well because the writing and the acting are, you know, very yeah. consistently top notch. I, I really like that show. The one thing I will say in terms of critiques is it suffers from what I'm going to call Archer syndrome, which is where the writing is too witty for its own good. Right. The jokes are a little bit too yeah, crazy. Like everyone just has like a perfect response to everything. Yeah. It pulls you out of the universe. Yeah. Like, yeah. In a, in a show like The Office, that's not where all the jokes come from. The jokes don't come from everyone being a jokester. They yeah. come from the situation that's created. Right. Right. Um, but still, it's it's worth watching. It's it's a, good it's show. a fun show. I, yeah. I really like it. And this new season is uh, just taking the core relationship in another direction that keeps it fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a fun show. I, I like it. I yeah. definitely recommend it if you are into the sort of thing, yeah. you know, half hour comedy and on FXX. Going off of what you said about like, there is so much stuff that we can't like tell you for sure what you're going to like, but I mean, we can tell you what we want people to see more of and we can describe it to the best of our abilities. And that's right. what, I mean, that's what I try to do when I describe something. I just want to get people into yeah. it because I like when people watch something that's really good in my opinion. Yeah. And we, we try, you know, we try to watch what we think is good, and that doesn't mean that everyone's going to think it's good. But yeah, that's that's why we have this podcast is to try to communicate what we feel like is the stuff that you should be watching. And I mean, we're not yeah. going to tell you have to watch yeah, it, but it's what we enjoy. You, we're going to tell you why we think you should. Be yeah, watching. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So okay. And then the the other show I did want to give a shout out to is The Good Place, which just mm. started its mm-hmm. second season on NBC. 
and I'm trying to catch up. I'm on season one, which is all on Netflix right now. Drew and I, we had started this season yeah. back when it was airing last year, but we only watched. Wait, that's so funny because literally last night I watched like four episodes of season one trying to finish it up. Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So we were trying to catch up to uh, watch season two. This is a very cool show. It's created by Mike Schur, who worked on uh, The Office yeah. and Ooh, Parks and Rec. He's, he's, yeah, co-creator of The Office, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, he has a very talented he's writer. He's a Harvard guy. He's an SNL guy. Uh, it's so it's a solid sitcom. It's a lot more premise based than all of those shows. Yeah. We've so the the premise said. is it takes place in the sort of afterlife world where people have died and gone to a heaven type thing called the good place. Yeah. The titular so, good place. Yeah. So we don't need to reveal like big spoilers, but essentially what it's about is that the main character that you follow is someone who actually doesn't belong. Played in by the Kristen good, Bell. Yeah. She doesn't belong in the good place, and so it's about her struggle knowing that she like she was there by mistake. Yeah. And what that yields to their world is like, you know, it wreaks havoc on and, it. And it's an NBC network show, so it doesn't have the biggest budget, but you do have good acting behind it. Yeah. And the writing is just very cool. Like, it's fun and whimsical in a way that doesn't feel forced. Hey, you know what's cool about this show is their writing staff is a, more than any other show I can name, largely hired based off of Twitters. Yeah. That is so cool to me to like kind of it's almost crowdsourcing but it's like just hiring people not based off if they went to harvard it's based on if they're funny yeah so they hired demi Adigbe. i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but he's incredibly funny he's on twitter they hired megan amram who is one of the funniest comedy twitters you can find jen statsky is really good and then joe mandy who is a comedian on his own right and he's, he wrote for parks and rec but he's also notable on twitter yeah it's i don't know it's just really cool that that's kind of where he's looking for new talent and keeping it fresh and, yeah. and trying to look to see what's next you know because that's where people are trying to get their voices heard you know yeah. if you're a creative like exactly. comedian like writer demi Ayadigbe hadn't had a big job before until this he had done like at midnight a couple times but he was known through twitter he's from like oklahoma or something like you can find people if you have the right means like that would not otherwise have a job and they're like as funny as it gets. Right. And this show is a good example of that. Yeah. So, so like that's it. the good place. Season one is all on Netflix right now. And season two just premiered on NBC. So again, check it out if you want. Um, I think we're going to take a break before we talk about mother. Mother. I'm going to take another mother. piss. Yeah. I think she was to pee again. He started peeing. Oh. I'm peeing. I'll be I right pee. back. I just peed. Tell your children not to hear my words What they mean, what they say Mother Mother Can you keep them in the dark for a while? Can you have them from the wedding world? Mother? Dearest 
right. Are you my mother? <laughs> Did you read that book when you were a kid? And we're back. Did you read that book when you were a kid? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Called, yeah. Yes. I read it. Classic <laughs> children's book, Are You My Mother? It's a little dog trying to find out who's his mom. And it's like, an ostrich? No. It's a dog. You're not my mother. Your mom's a dog. You know who is my mother? Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> we're talking mother. Hashtag not my mother. <laughs> the, new, the new film from Mr. Darren Aronofsky. Of Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan fame. And, and Pi. And The Wrestler. And yeah. The Fountain. The Fountain, probably his most underrated film, yeah. I would say. So, dude's got a pedigree. Yeah, so this movie, this fucking movie. This is this is the most vis- one of the most visceral things I've seen ever. Period. Especially Whether it's in on the a theater. screen or not, yeah. it was just viscerally woof. Yeah, like it's hard and to even describe. It's an absolute assault <laughs> on every level. Yeah, and let's just say that you know the movie has an F cinema score right now. Audiences are not reacting well to it at all. Yeah. Critics are reacting not overall completely positively, but more positively than an F. Critics tend to like it somewhat from what I've seen. Uh, I I think we all kind of liked it. Let's uh, Uh, let's just go around. Let's go. Let's go around. Um, I'll start and I'll say that this movie, um, we saw it a week ago. So we've been seeing, we've been sitting on it for, you know, almost, almost a whole week just thinking about it. Drew is the one with the freshest take. He saw it today. So get ready for my take. So after just thinking about it for a week, I think I liked this movie Mm. just because it's, it's just been sitting in the back of my head every single day. Mm. It's never left my thoughts. Like that's, I, I can't stop thinking about okay. this fucking so movie. So it might be premature, but out of 10. That's okay. Right when I walked out, I wanted to give it like a six or seven. Uh-huh. And I think I might stick to that just because on a pure filmmaking level, it's so bold and risky and just original and unique that I, I can't help but appreciate that. Even mm-hmm. though it made me feel really shitty and like (laughs) angry and upset afterwards. Like just the fact that I was still going back and thinking about it every single day and every moment after seeing it, like I I couldn't, I couldn't help but think about this movie. Even if I didn't want to think about it, it was Mm -hmm. still there and it was still eating away at my brain. Okay. So Hunter, I know you have a more negative take. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't say overall, I did not hate this movie because I appreciate that it exists and that it got it got a wider release from a company as big as Paramount. But I would say overall, I can't say that I like the movie. I would probably give it a four out of five. Or a four <laughs> out of ten. Four out of, not four out of five. Four out, four out of ten. Okay, no, I, I'd give it like a four, maybe a 4.5. Out of ten. Out of ten. Okay. But I, I'd say overall, I did not love this film. I really appreciated some of the ideas that it brought up but for me and we'll get more into this in spoilers because this is going to be a long spoiler review because you can't really discuss specifics about the movie without getting into spoilers definitely not. but 
it was all very i while watching this movie i felt very disconnected to it and it all seemed very super surface level yeah and we'll get into the specifics later and i can understand why you would say that all right drew okay what do you think i yeah i saw it today i went to the theater alone it was a very it was a memorable experience i'm going to remember this experience for a long time um Overall, I liked the movie, despite myself. I was going in not expecting to really like it that much. But the, I mean, I, I put a lot of weight into originality, and that was obviously, mm-hmm. you know, that, that box was checked. The f- Okay, without spoiling, it's a good time to uh, recognize the feeling that this movie gave me is almost identical to the feeling that i have in most of my nightmares that i have <laughs> the movie is is a nightmare is, of a film really well because it's not i get i in most nightmares i've read this as a pattern before it's not just me you're not just getting like jump scared a bunch of times like a normal horror movie it's a feeling of being powerless to what's absolutely and, no control and trapped yeah, exactly that's trapped. yeah exactly like in most of my nightmares like i'm trying to run away from something or something and i just can't do it for whatever reason so it has the feeling of a nightmare for most of the movie where g- these things are just happening to jennifer lawrence's character who is the character who you made to empathize with because it's the character that you follow throughout the entire movie yeah and it's you she is entirely powerless to what's happening these things are just happening and she's like why is this happening yet she can't stop it that the feeling that i felt was it felt like i was watching one of my nightmares right well one thing i will say uh, just to uh, chime in real quick is that i did really appreciate the feeling of claustrophobia in this movie yeah and how it all feels you because you follow this movie through the eyes of jennifer lawrence's character yeah and you are really able to sympathize with her which makes what happens towards the latter part of the movie that much more difficult oh to my swallow. God. Yeah. All right, and, Brett, let's, well, yeah. let's get your, your, your overall take on the film. We'll, we'll get more into the spoilers and stuff later, but overall, I definitely like the film. And as time drones on, I continue to like it more and more. Mm-hmm. I think that for the first like hour after the movie, I was like, I never want to see this again. I think I told I that to Hunter. I felt the same way. <laughs> Me too. Like, I can't wait to never watch this movie yeah. again. <laughs> like, However, I, I appreciated it, and I, I was happy that it existed, but I was just kept thinking, like, I don't think I could sit through a second viewing of no. this. Just in, in general, I like movies that tastefully make me feel uncomfortable, and more than ever, Aronofsky has proved that he's an absolute Time expert. and time again. Yeah. He, yeah. he has no problem making you feel all of these very negative, uncomfortable, yeah. a- angry, and, and just than, extreme feelings. The biggest adjective I would use when describing watching this movie is difficult. Yeah. It's difficult to watch, but you, I didn't regret watching it. Yeah, I mean, like, a it was lot of hard people, to watch, but I was like, I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. A, a lot of people left the theater. Uh, I mean, not at our screening because we were the... We were literally the only, literally ones. The only <laughs> ones there. But, but people are so angry at this movie. People <laughs> hate this oh, movie yeah. like they are leaving the theater and um did did you have did you have anything else to to add to your thoughts Brett? the only thing i was gonna i was gonna move on with was i really wanted to ask Ernest as a filmmaker what he thought about the way the movie was directed as far as co- combining wide shots okay well close-ups i i will talk a little bit more in depth about that later but just uh very basically the film doesn't give you a moment to breathe Mm-hmm. It's all shot uh, 90 90% of the film is all 
either a close-up of Jennifer Lawrence's face, a over-the-shoulder shot of, of you know, what she's looking at, or her direct point of view. Yeah, that, That's and, pretty much every shot. And that contributes to what Hunter was saying about the claustrophobia. Yeah, there's pretty much only four, literally only four wide yeah. shots in the entire movie exactly. that give you that moment to sort of rest and breathe. Yeah, And boy, does that work. Yeah. It really yeah. gives you a moment. But when you finally get one, you're like, oh my but God. But in terms, in terms of filmmaking... I'm sure this was very, very challenging for for Darren Aronofsky to be able to pull this off because when you're shooting a, a film, a wide shot is a way to sort of reset and recalibrate the scene and give yourself coverage and 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 room to to work out the uh, the, the the scene. Yeah, you know, if you're sticking to a lot of tight shots, mm. it's going to be a lot tougher yeah. to to you know, make the scene make sense yeah. and, and give the audience something to, to, to follow and, and to, to look at that, that they can, you know, yeah, they can, that they know what's going like, on. Not only is it hard for the viewer to, to not have those shots. It's hard to direct a movie that doesn't have shots. Exactly. Like that. It must've been so and challenging for the, him. The biggest uh, kind of shot that I just kept seeing and I kept noticing in this movie was following shots where it would mm -hmm. either from in front of Jennifer Lawrence or behind it was following her yeah. moving throughout this house which is where the whole movie takes place yeah and it it had an effect because with following shots it was all steady cam it wasn't like dolly shots and steady cam just gives you a, a very intimate close feeling of just like yeah. almost unsettledness like, I think that we should talk about J-Law's performance because mm -hmm. For me, that was one of the weakest aspects of the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, okay. Overall, I should preface this by saying I'm not a J Law fan. Ooh. I think that. So is this a personal does... attack? Yes. Yeah. Terrorist she's trash. Attack. Is it because um, she's a woman? Yeah. No, that's what it is. I want more men in. You my want films. her to be Harvey Arbor Dem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I really think that this movie would have benefited from having a more seasoned actress because I think that J Law has this habit in. And it'll vary and it varies a lot throughout this film where she goes from underacting in scenes to overacting, crying, over the top acting. Mm. And I that really, really bugged me and it rung it rubbed me the wrong way a couple times throughout this movie where it was like, Why aren't you fucking losing your shit right now? Like what are you doing? Yeah, all right. Okay, so well, I, I I think we should save a lot of this stuff for spoilers. I Yeah. Let's... Well this I can I'm going to give my viewpoint on that now because I don't have to spoil anything because I'm going to give the disagreeing viewpoint. I thought because I heard I, I had seen you said that in uh, like our Facebook group chat or something before and I was expecting her to not do very well. And I I thought she did pretty solid. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I but I respect what you're saying. Like, I, I just I think she did OK. But in a movie like this that just follows the one central character, they really need to elevate the role. Yeah. And I don't think that she elevated. She didn't the role she didn't necessarily elevate it, but I think she did well with the range of emotions that she was expected to portray, which is a pretty limited range of emotions, because throughout the almost throughout 95 percent of the movie, it's all the almost the same emotion that she's feeling. Yeah. I, I think Jennifer Lawrence did a great job in this film. I think she's a very, very talented actress. And I think what she's doing is so precise and calculated that um, it's, it's tough to pinpoint exactly what she's doing. And again, it's, it's tough to, to say this without spoiling the movie. Yeah. But I, I liked it. The more I think about it, the more 
I like what she was going for. But can you for. recommend it to people? That's the biggest problem with this movie. Okay, is that so, I, I respect yeah, different th- things okay, about it, but yeah, it's impossible this, to recommend this movie. This to can people. be the last thing we talk about before we exactly. Spoil. This is let's 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 get into this before we go into spoilers. I think one of the reasons why people are hating this movie is because it was horribly mismarketed. It's terribly marketed. It's, it's one of the worst marketing I've ever seen. For yeah, a movie. it's sold as I mean, the marketing has changed since the movie has been released. But before leading up to its release, the movie was sold as this like horror, like haunted house, scary story sort of thing where it looked like Jennifer Lawrence was, you know, being persecuted by this like living house. It did look like a haunted house movie. Exactly. So that people are going into this movie expecting a Jennifer Lawrence haunted house movie. Yeah. And she's been in one before, by the way, she was in last house on the left, which was like a very standard horror movie. Yeah. So fans of that may have been like, Oh cool. Another one. They're expecting your average horror movie. And they don't know that this is a Darren Aronofsky movie that is going to fuck you up. Very cerebral. Completely eviscerate you on every level. (laughs) And people are not ready for that shit. Yeah. You know? They are not ready. And especially because they don't know what this movie is actually about. And I I am still deliberating whether or not Darren Aronofsky meant for that to happen. I don't know if he wanted the marketing to be misleading or if Paramount looked at this movie and thought, bro... What the fuck did you just do? Yeah. What the fuck is this movie? That's, we have to trick people into seeing this movie because I mean, it's so crazy. That's much more likely what happened because you can't like, what would you even market? And like, I mean, the thing is, hey, is, mass appeal. Look at this like weird fucking artsy fartsy yeah. like, psychological. And it's released by Paramount Pictures, a studio that has they don't have a Marvel or DC property. They have literally nothing like they are are really struggling to make big money because all they really have is transformers and that <laughs> is just crashing like a dumpster fire like mm. they're that franchise is gonna die did, did they get the other aronofsky movies or is this their first that they've got um i think he does have a production deal okay. with paramount i'm not entirely Man. sure so he so they were like sweet we got this guy who did requiem instead yeah Black swan i know no noah noah was probably with them and noah was like darren aronofsky's biggest budget film i True. i don't think that movie did very well i i didn't see no, it. it i don't did think not. anyone saw it definitively it. did not do well but um, Darren like wrote this movie in the span of five days. It was like a fever dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into yet uh, what say, uh, what exactly he, like, he thing, was thinking. One when thing he wrote that I this. really don't like about this is that I feel like because the movie is not doing well. Darren Aronofsky and all these interviews, he's doing so many interviews trying to like explain himself in the movie. And it comes across, it's really like the anti Lynch. Exactly. Where with David Lynch, he released Twin Peaks. He did, he did some like a couple interviews here and there, but he, it's basically like nothing. Mm. You're not reading anything. He's giving nothing away. He wants you to draw your own conclusions from it. And he's over explaining everything on what he intended. It's tough to to decide. What would you rather have? Would you rather have someone that over explains? it or completely under this is interesting because i was going to ask you hunter would you compare it to a lynch film i would not because we're gonna get into this in spoilers but i mean i don't think it's really a spoiler to say that this movie is very metaphor and allegory driven and lynchian is just like out there no no because (laughs) this movie 
Um, we'll get into spoilers right after this because there's a couple like certain images that I want to uh, define here, but it's very on the nose. Okay. Extremely okay. on the nose. So and let's, it me the let's do way. the spoiler marker okay. right fucking so, now. So if you yeah. haven't seen Mother, go see it just for the sake. Maybe. It depends. It really depends on the oh, person. If okay. You... Yeah. I was going to say, if y- <sighs> there are certain people in my life that I would tell, I would say, never watch this movie. You can't, like, don't well, do it. You'll if hate you're, it. If you're into film. And you're into a- analyzing film the way we yeah. are, and you listen to film podcasts, and, and you're into this well, whole yeah. discussion d- aspect of film, go see Mother. You, you also have to be okay with getting fucked up pretty hard. Yeah. Don't buy um, popcorn before you go see the film. Yeah, d- just uh, know, <laughs> know that not every movie is going to be a fun, jolly, good time at the movies. And, and you got to be ready for some severely demented shit. Yeah, just know that sometimes... There's going to be filmmakers that make works of art that are going to challenge you and that are going to piss you off and anger you and yeah. offend you. Some of the greatest artists of all time have been driven out of town because they are have been deemed obscene and yeah and just fucked up and crazy. I, yeah, that's I would say watch it if you want to see something that's polarizing and fucked up. Yeah. If those if those adjectives attract you, then watch it because that's what you're gonna get. Yeah, but so, just just know that there's a reason why people are hating this film because there's a lot of stuff in here that will offend you and will anger you and will make you feel a lot of negative stuff. Just be prepared for that. So now that we're sort of in this spoiler section, not, not, not yet. Are we? Okay, let's do it right now. Boop, boop, beep, boop, 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 boop. Spoilers. Mother, mother, do you Dearest think we brought I think I'm ready to die. Right. What's in the box? Aren't you glad that we did that? Yeah, no, I'm just letting you talk. I feel a lot more comfortable now. <laughs> okay, so, okay good. go ahead. So I'd like to go spoilers back. Spoilers now. A little bit uh, to the marketing aspect of things. A lot of people probably went into this thinking they're going to be watching a normal horror movie. The first half of the movie, you feel comfortable knowing that you're in this very normal horror movie. And then you enter that you slowly enter this absolute yeah. nightmare that Drew is talking. I kind of want to very just, yeah. slowly. I wanted to yeah, say such that a slow build for almost the. Ma- I would say the majority of the movie, nothing that's actually really fucked up happens. It's just a feeling of something fucked up. It's not an actual event that's like, oh, that's that's fucking the worst. Like it's just her feeling uncomfortable that these people are kind of invading her house and her husband is not on her side. And it doesn't really make any yeah. sense. And there's all this, and then this is obviously the vague things about the house like bleeding and things like that, which is unsettling. But it's not like, oh no, oh no. It's there's nothing that's like truly like ah like happening yet. Yeah. I honestly feel that they should have, and it would have worked better for both box office and for wider appreciation if they would have marketed this movie as what it is, which is. I mean, it's wholly made up of about four or five main allegories, but primarily it's a retelling of the Bible. And that's what it's about, is it's telling the story through the Bible where Javier Bardem's character is playing God and uh, J-Law is playing Mother Nature. And I just, I feel like I would have enjoyed the movie more. I mean, I picked up on it pretty early on that that's what they were going for. But I just think that the movie as a whole would have been better if it was properly marketed as the movie that was. This this is a good debate that's been, I've seen among like forums and in reviews and everything. If you watch a movie and you have, afterwards you have to look it up, is that a good movie? You have to look it up yeah, and figure out what's it's, going on. It's a good debate. I mean, there's been so many movies that through the years have gotten this reputation for 
needing the supplementary material like donnie darko or mulholland drive um your one of your favorite movies uh enemy enemy yeah and you have to look it up that's the thing that i was thinking of is in a movie because i cerebral thriller movies like this are like one of my favorite types of genres and i love movies that it's not just a like sit back and enjoy some shit exploding exploding it's a movie that you have to really think about and it's more about deriving what it means to you Mm. and i just i have no desire the thing with those movies is i always like after i rewatched after i watched enemy i was like i can't wait to rewatch this movie Mm. i have no desire to ever watch mother again because (laughs) i feel like after thinking about it and everything it's like all right, I know, I know everything. Like, I'm not going to learn anything mm. more by watching it again. I get everything that's, that's being yeah, told to me. That's yeah. Well, in, in terms of the allegories and the metaphors, I, I definitely agree with that. But now, after sitting on it for a week, I really think that a second viewing would inform more of like the technical filmmaking aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Just because the the film is so ambitious in how it really sticks to the Jennifer Lawrence character and doesn't let up from that. It's just all her. Yeah. That just by itself is so tough to do in a film to just stick to one character and let that character carry the film and have everything work around it. And, and you as an audience member be able to follow what's going on especially the chaos mm-hmm. of the second and third acts like those were by far the best shots when you see her walking through the house and the apocalypse is breaking out around yeah her. Mm-hmm. and also that uh kind of relates back to our opinions on the movie if you're only following one person and like you said letting them carry it then your opinion of how they do might very well reflect your opinion of the movie yeah which, if you just hate jennifer yeah. lawrence's face you're gonna hate looking or, at it for two you, hours yeah or if you just don't like how she did it then you might not like yeah. the movie well okay this speaks because you were talking about some of the technical aspects of the film some of the things that didn't work for me and some of the things that did of course i loved the sh- all of the shots of following through the house and seeing the chaos escalate and escalate and all hell break loose there were there was one specific shot earlier in the film which you later understand to be the Cain and Abel figures, um, these two yeah, the brothers, brothers, and there is they have this like fight with each other, and one of them ends up killing the other one, and it's shot with a lot of shaky cam and stuff, and it really it it almost gave me a headache, like a slight <laughs> tinge of a headache, just because it was I did not like the way that it was shot whatsoever. It really did not work for me at all. But there were also other aspects of the film that I really appreciated. That's why I can't truly hate this movie and say that it's like a terrible film because I appreciate so much about being original. But my biggest drawback to it is when I see a movie like this that's filled with metaphor and allegory, I try and derive some kind of a personal meaning to it and like, okay, what was the purpose of this film? And when you remove all of the allegories and metaphors, it's a very, very surface level story. And I feel like I didn't really learn anything from it. Mm. Well, I I think the surface level story is that of a woman who is going through a home invasion and she's losing control of this home invasion and she's letting all these people into her house and she's, she has no say in the matter. Yeah. She's not only her home, she's losing control over. She's losing control or not even control, but just like, she's not touching base anymore with her love of her life. The, 
her entire life revolves around Javier Bardem's character, who is a poet and a writer. Um, and over the course of the movie, he ends up essentially deciding to share himself and his house and his works with the masses instead of just his wife. He, he basically writes the New Testament. Yeah, and it's she is just losing control over everything that she wants. And there, are, I mean, I feel like there are a couple of meanings you can derive. So from that's it. that. What you're saying now is one of the main themes and uh, in, in allegorical metaphors of the film because if if we break down all the allegories we have the biblical creation story we have the whole uh environmental climate change global warming which is being advertised story. a lot exactly that's what uh aronofsky is pushing as what he thought of when he wrote the script aronofsky does a lot of environmental work and he was inspired by you know the 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 fucking shit show of a planet that we're living in mm-hmm. with all of this climate change shit. Mm-hmm. He, he's terrified that his children is, are not going to have a suitable world to live in. And that's what spurred this script yeah. that he wrote. And then we have the whole fame celebrity angle. Exactly. Which is him coping with his relationship with Rachel Weisz, his ex-wife and how she, he, he's trying to, kind of cope with what he did to her and understand how she felt See, being married to him. That was the biggest thing that I took away from it is I was thinking like he was, he probably made that movie after he had a thought that was like, man, I've really fucked up a bunch of my girlfriends. Cause exactly. all I can think about is my movie. You movies. just put your work yeah. above your loved ones. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a big theme in it. It's, and that's such a resonant theme yeah, that this, we can't fully connect with because we're not celebrities. We're not famous. Yeah, kind of similar to Whiplash in a way of yeah. putting your work ahead of all human relationships. Uh, but this is a more, you're in this movie, like in Whiplash, you're made, the person you follow is Miles Teller. You're not made to empathize very much with the girlfriend character. Right. In this movie... You were so frustrated for her character. I was so frustrated for Jennifer Lawrence because she was like... She loves him so much. Yeah, she put so much stake into him and he just kept on betraying her over and over. And part of the reason that I would almost agree that it almost didn't work... I I still like the movie and everything. But one thing I think they could have done better is established what their relationship was like before this. You're only known to know Javier Bardem's character as an ominous figure. You're not, there's never like a before period where like, oh, like he's great and they love each other so much. There's not meant to be a before period because the the cycle continues and and they just wake up. That leads into another one of my biggest complaints that I had with the movie is that I would have enjoyed it more. We'll just get into the whole final act of the film is J-Law becomes a mother, mother, and um, she has this baby which is essentially Jesus and the son of God. Yeah. Javier Bardem's character is so much more obsessed with the fame and people loving him and his work than he is with his own wife that he hands this baby over to the people and the people completely, they kill this child. The baby's neck ends up getting snapped. And then in what is to us a blink of the eye, which kind of relates back to the nightmare. It's it's the exactly it's the nightmare, the loss of time. Yeah. Like there's like time, there's like this little time jump in it where like the baby's dead and she knows it. And then like, she like comes around the corner and she sees that it is like been basically deep, like gutted and people are eating parts of this. It's like very, I mean, that was, see, it was one of those things that about how the imagery is just so on the nose. Like, 
like it was like it's a take on com- on communion. Yeah, it's, communion, it's eating, eating the body, of the Christ. body and yeah. the blood of Christ. Like it was just like the that, holy baby. Yeah, which that was by far the most difficult scene to watch. Probably one of the most difficult scenes I've ever sat through in a movie theater oh, because yeah. it breaks from that to that was the point where J-Law finally broke in the movie and she just starts killing all of these disciples of Javier Bardem yeah. and they turn on her and, and they throw her to the ground and just start beating the shit out of her. That was absolutely horrifying. And it's horrifying to watch. That was the moment whenever I really appreciated the claustrophobia that that movie sets up. Mm-hmm. Um, but leading into one of my problems with the movie was I would have preferred that it were a film about the cycle breaking and in the end, the movie ends with the cycle just starting all over again. You're yeah. led to believe that this is just a constant loop, which speaks to kind of a frightening telling of Darren Aronofsky as a person. Yeah, that exactly. he's like, if this he's is like, an autobiographical story, yeah, that's which you're up. really led to believe that he's just like, I've done this before, and I'm going to do this again mm-hmm. to all of my it's future the sacrifice people in my life. For his creativity. That's, going back to the nightmare, it's it's almost like a recurring nightmare, and it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not meant to be fixed. Sort of to go back to the acting and how the acting was sort of one dimensional, maybe sometimes two dimensional. That was each character playing a very specific archetype. Mm-hmm. And Ernest and I were talking about this. Before. Right. They were, they were kind of because of the nature of the movie and the fact that it is, they weren't very, real people. Yeah, very they were representations. That's kind of what I meant. There's no before period where you're like, you get to know the real them and then something happens. It's just, they're just, this is what it is. And he acts like this and she acts like this throughout the entire movie. Yeah, I I think with that, it's it's tough to judge the performances of the actors as them playing real people because they're not yeah, like they're, not. they're having to do they're all metaphors. Yeah, and and I think honestly, this is what makes this movie so interesting and and just elevates it to another level for me because Aronofsky has taken all of these really abstract concepts like God. And climate change and fame. Think, like, how do you make a movie about all these things? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's tough. He is, um, and he and he puts it all in a house in a relationship between two people. Yeah, it's it's you, so impressive. It's hard to deny the fact that whether or not it's a good movie to you, he's a smart guy. And when oh, when definitely. smart when smart people make movies, there are different interpretations that they intentionally create. Yeah, like Kubrick is the best example, where like with The Shining. I mean, you know, there's that shitty Netflix documentary, but there, the the premise, I mean, the thesis of that documentary is there. There are so many different ways to interpret it, and maybe they're all right. Right, and and with this 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 film, it's it's crazy because everyone is gonna react to it differently. I know mm-hmm. we all have, and and yeah. we all have very similar but different understanding of, yeah. of what it it means to us because we're all gonna relate to it on a different level based on our personal experiences. And that's why a lot of people are hating it because of what they've lived through or, or Mm. or what they are. I mean, look, none of us are women. None of us are fathers. None None of us. I I can't imagine watching this movie as either being a woman or having a child of my own. Oh my God. No, like I can't, I I can't imagine. Probably wouldn't be able to. We should have said that in the pre spoiler segment. If you have a kid, you probably shouldn't watch it. Yeah. A young kid, like copy oh and no, paste actually, that in there. Actually, no. There are people like uh, Jeff Kanata of the Slash Film Cast, friend of the pod. He has a small child, <laughs> and he loved the film. Yeah. Well, he if was you can, able if you can separate it. Exactly. He was able to separate it and yeah. know that this is just a movie. Yeah, but it's it's just it's <laughs> tricky. 
Um, and I can see in retrospect kind of what you were talking about with the on the nose symbolism, Hunter. Uh, it kind of beats you there's, over the head. Okay, there's one specific shot where it shows it's like a recurring shot where it shows an oven and you're like, bun in the oven. I get it. Like, yeah. mother. Okay, I the one it. that I was thinking of as far as super on the nose goes and also kind of biblical the very end where she's he's like do you have anything left to give and she gives her literal heart yeah. to him yeah that's that's it's pretty super, yeah. i i did not care for that ending whatsoever <laughs> like i just because i mean of course there's that whole thing where adam and eve the adam and eve characters break this ed crystal. harris and michelle pfeiffer which I think their performances were pretty solid. I thought Ed Harris did a I very thought Ed good Harris job. did really good. Michelle Pfeiffer was all right. I thought that her I, I mean I She didn't have was, enough to do. Exactly. And that was the thing is she was given more of like the heretic side of Eve that's portrayed yeah, the whole than temptation. The yeah, she's just obsessed yeah. with like under undies and like sex and all this stuff. And that didn't really work for me. Mm. But this whole thing where the Adam and Eve characters break this this crystal that has like it's you later it's later revealed to be the heart like it's someone's true love for javier bardem's character and the fact that that's how the movie ended was he just like ripped her heart out and and set it back on the pedestal and everything went back to normal you could if if you kind of chopped off the first couple minutes of the movie and then the last couple minutes of the movie i think it would be a really different film one that doesn't have the cyclical nature and it may have been better it, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. If it didn't have the whole thing where it just restarts and you're like, oh, cool. But that that kind of makes you think of what the whole point of the movie is. And that's the reason why I was so um, just conflicted after watching this movie. Because I sat there thinking like, okay, he's God. She's Mother Earth. Humans are destroying Earth. We're horrible. So what? Like, so what? what's yeah. the point? What that, are you trying to say, Aronofsky? That was exactly my point. And it's it's not mm-hmm. very clear. And it, you think like, like okay, you're making this movie telling everyone how horrible humans are and how fucked up everything is and how much you hate the world and all these horrible things that that you're just trying to air out because Aronofsky is just trying to just get it out there. Like this film is him like venting basically. Also self self deprecating in a way he's acknowledging yeah. that he's the, oh, yeah. exactly. Definitely. And, and that, and that man is inherently flawed and sort of evil. What do we do about it? What, what is he trying well, to it, say it, that it we be, should do about it? It's don't, what's the solution. Maybe don't be so influenced. The idea of man being created in God's image is Javier Bardem making content, writing poems, and that severely influencing these people, influencing men, and that becomes their point of view. So he could be saying, you know, you can be absorbing all this media, this all so much content that we have, but you still need to think for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's a good point. That's definitely a facet of it. But, yeah. but if you, I mean, obviously we're not very familiar with Christianity and, and Catholicism, but if you think of God the way he's written in the Bible, God creates man because he doesn't see this perfect paradise as being enough. Like he creates the world, he creates the universe and it's absolutely perfect. And then he's like, no, that's not enough. And Javier Bardem says that in the film. He needs that adoration of man. That was one he thing craves that, it. That was one thing that I kind of appreciated was 
This is one of those movies that thinking about it, I think, is much more enjoyable than the film itself and talking <laughs> about it. And it's this idea that God is an egomaniac and that mm-hmm. he he created us just to worship him and yeah, just to love him. Because he needs it. That he was, needs that. That was a big thing I took away from it. Yeah, that was one of my biggest takeaways from it is that God's kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're alienating some some listeners today. Hey, well, they probably haven't even seen the movie yet, so it's fine. Spoiler, God is dead and not real. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, look, like, you can believe whatever you want. We're not trying to tell you what you should and shouldn't believe. But it's very clear that Darren Aronofsky has some very extreme feelings about religion and the Bible. He is obviously very familiar with it, and I'm sure he was raised religious. Mm-hmm. But w- what I get from him making this movie is not necessarily him bashing religion, but just using it as a way to point out how fucked up we are yeah, and how um, just self-destructive the human race is. So, yeah, so we went into the, all the central themes of it, but uh, zooming back out into, like, as a movie, I think it made me feel a specific emotion that no movie has made me feel. It's I've never seen something that generated this feeling. I've only had dreams that generated it. And it was literally been described as a fever dream movie that he wrote in a right. fever dream. So I think in terms of what he wanted to do, I think he succeeded. I think he did what he wanted to do. Yeah. He made a movie that will make, whether or not you like it, it's going to make you feel some, some emotions. Right. I, yeah, I'd, I'd agree absolutely with that. I will say like... My biggest thing, because I think it's interesting for you guys, the more that you think about it, how you appreciate it more, because I have some of that, but there's also things that like, I really, I just, I don't approve of the more and more that I think about it. Like the reason why the chaos scenes are so effective is it's pure shock value. And there reaches a certain point, certain points in the film where I feel like it's shock value just to be shock value, just so that you're sitting there in your seat going, what the fuck is happening right now? Oh my God, why does this keep escalating? And I, while I feel like that would have worked better if it had a better centralized story that wasn't just metaphor and everything like that, like movies that I appreciate are movies that can stand alone and you can respect and appreciate the plot itself as well as it being an overlying allegory for some bigger meaning. Right. Yeah. And, and that goes back to something that we've been talking about this week of trying to look at the movie in a vacuum. I think it's really tough to do that because I don't, I don't like that at all. It's so <laughs> it, this movie is tied to all of these other things. It's completely dependent on the allegory. Yeah, like, like you can't like, separate it. It's, it's tied to to religion and and in the state of our planet and celebrity culture and fame that you kind of have to associate it to all those things in order to appreciate it as as the work of art it is. And I think art should be like that. I think art needs to be looked at in the context of the world it's created in because that's that's what an artist is doing an artist is is taking mm-hmm. in the world around them and processing it internalizing it and then throwing it back out there on a canvas or a movie screen and and, and letting you know what they think of it in 
yeah. their own way and their own interpretation. That is, that's a really, really eloquent point. That's true. Uh, and if you don't like it, that's, you know, that's perfectly fine. And Darren doesn't care if you like it or not. And, and it's a, it's a true piece of art. And I appreciate that, that he leaves it. I wish that he didn't do as much interviewing as he did to <laughs> give people their own perspective. I mean, they're going to lose a lot of money on this movie. So he's trying to backtrack. And Yeah, and, but at this point, it's going to lose money regardless. Yeah. It has an F cinema yeah. score. No one's going to be like, let me see what Darren said. Par- yeah. Paramount is trying to lean into the negative reviews at this point and they're mm. using them in the marketing to be like look at how much people hate that. this movie go see it yeah, go like, see yeah. it for like, yourself i've seen posters where one side of it is like negative mm-hmm. reviews and one is positive exactly and it, it, that is intriguing it's in effective. a way yeah, yeah it's like wow i mean it's better than just when they use only positives, it's like, yeah, well, they cherry Yeah, it. But it's like, no, they're I they're think it's really interesting fine. that uh, out of the four of us, none of us find it to be found it to be horrible and none of us found it to be a masterpiece, which seemed yeah. to be the critical responses. People are like, That's a good point. that was horrible. Or people are like, five stars. It's not a masterpiece at all. But yeah. it's definitely a movie that is going to be analyzed and talked about for a yeah. long time. And, and I, think I appreciate that, they exist. And yeah. I, yeah, for just sure. Because I, just because, I just want to make it clear, just because I overall, I'd say I disliked, uh, I thought it the movie was okay or slightly below average i would say i'm so happy that darren aronofsky made this yeah. film and that movies like this can get made especially on a big scale on with such big a actors huge scale yeah. like it's so impressive to me that something as original as this film can be made you gotta support original filmmaking yeah yeah one other thing i wanted us to get to is i want to talk about how this movie coming out in the age of the internet um, impacts people's, you know, uh, way of, of, yeah. of talking about it and, and discussing it. Because that's, go ahead. that's exactly why none of us found it to be shit. And none of us found it to be a masterpiece is because all four of us are influenced by what we've been seeing on the internet. Yeah. And we're able to process point. everyone's opinions in a way that we can sort of digest what we're feeling. Yeah. But the the thing I want to I want to discuss is how can we read and and listen to, you know, read all these articles and listen to all these podcasts and process everyone's thoughts on on these movies which are obviously very uh close to their own experiences and what all of these people have to bring to the table and still be able to form our own opinions. See, like we need to be able to feel however we feel about this movie without feeling like we're wrong. That's what I went into this movie trying the most to do. I was just, I was sitting, I was in the back row of the theater all by myself. I had heard opinions, but more than anything, I just wanted to clear my head and just let it hit me and see what I thought. Right. And that's, that is honestly, it's a hard thing to do today. When I, if you're into film, you're reading about film. It's a, it's a tricky thing to kind of tackle. Especially with a movie like this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the only thing we can really say is that the the only way you can interpret it yourself is to go see it and try to ignore, like, like maybe we sparked you to see it, but try to maybe even ignore what we said while you're watching yeah. it. Yeah. After, afterward, think about, oh, well, they said this and I think that's true. But while you're watching it, just try to let that affect how you feel but i think that this movie uh is actually a little bit easier to formulate your own opinion just because it's so visceral it's going to affect each and every person a different way each of us have a little bit of a differing opinion on the movie Mm. like and not very many films you see if you see an average marvel film you can everybody can leave the theory at least be like yeah that was pretty good that was solid Mm -hmm. 
And there's a subset of the population that is 100% not going to be down with seeing what happens in this movie. Exactly. No, there's Definitely a subset of the, of the population there's some that horrifying will, shit. Yeah, that will like walk out of the theater. It makes you absolutely sick to your stomach. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's important to have filmmakers like Darren Aronofsky doing shit like this because yeah. it, it keeps the art form alive in a way that is so important yeah. now when everything is the same and it's being remade and rebooted 50 times. It, it just feels so good to be able to talk about this sort of film and, and to be able to discuss a movie so original and bold and able to just shock us in such a way that no other movie can no marvel movie will ever make us (laughs) have this sort of discussion ever no that was what i left the theater thinking i was still i was still absorbing it almost and i was just like i was shocked and i was feeling a bunch of conflicting emotions but i was like i was thinking i'm glad that i saw this and i'm glad that it's a thing i'd rather there be this than there not be this yeah even if it's not a perfect movie, which yeah. it's far from, I, I'm, I'm just glad that, that we were able to to experience it and see it. And um, just to close things out, I also wanted to go back to um, the point that we were trying to make earlier of like, what's the point? What's the point of this movie? I think it's very clear that Darren just wanted to hold a mirror up to humanity and to society. And for us to just sit there and think about where we're at as as a as a race as a as a society and and just sit there and think he held a mirror up to us by holding a mirror up to himself yes which i think is really mm-hmm. fascinating that's, so that's, true okay. so so true he was able to relate his own very very personal experience in in a small story about a married couple to this huge macro abstract yeah. story of the history of, of the world and the biblical creation and how we're destroying our yeah. planet. And it's, it's like what you were saying earlier on a macro level, art in general is man's attempt to understand the world. Yeah. And so this was his attempt to interpret and understand what he sees and what he experiences. And on that level, I mean, he interpreted. He did what he yeah. wanted to do. But what's sad is that I, it's going to be so inaccessible to general audience goers <laughs> oh, yeah. that <laughs> it, he's not going to get that chance to show a mirror to yeah. society itself. No, no way. It's it's showing a mirror to other art house people who already understand yeah. these issues. <laughs> but that's things. a good point. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, true. It's, it does a really bad job, I think, of actually like trying to make it so like, look, general audience goer, this is who you yeah. are. And, and I think that's really why people don't like it because your average movie goer doesn't want to think about that kind of stuff yeah. when and they they're go not to a, movies. They're, and they're not along for that ride. Even if they would be open to thinking about that and open to thinking about wow we are messing up mother earth a lot of people who would be open to thinking about that would not be open to thinking about eating a baby yeah, yeah. and that's <laughs> and that's, and that's, yeah. that's what they're gonna be and, and there's your comic relief and i think yes. that's what that's what hunter meant when he when he was saying that the movie was very ambitious but missed its mark and you know was, there will always will always be wondering and darren will always be wondering what could have been i just i feel i have this overlying feeling that 
Darren had the thought when setting out, like, I want to make this very ambiguous film to begin with that makes people have to jump all over the place. All right, what kind of a film are we in? But I think overall that works against the movie itself. Because, like we said before, you can't market for this movie. Like, there's no marketing technique that would make this movie work because it jumps all over the place in the tr- in the film that it's trying to tell. I agree. And he'll always wonder what could have been if the movie would have been marketed different. If it would have been released in LA and New York for a couple weeks. I think it would have had a much better wide. I think it would have done much better if it had a slow We'll never release. know. Yeah. Yeah. So to I mean to pull back out, I think we can all agree even if we don't all like it. It's a movie that is worth seeing to be part of the discussion about it. Because it's a great discussion. The discussion is better than the it's movie. It's so deep. <laughs> it's, it, like, yeah. I, I 100% I agree with that. that. Yeah. yeah. I've thought more about the movie than I did. Like, overall, I don't think the movie was great, but I thought they had some really good ideas behind it mm-hmm. and some really good thoughts and led to some great discussions that we've had in the past week. I'm really interested to see what your take is going to be on it in a week, Drew, because yeah, my be opinions, my opinions different. on different scenes and everything, like they've changed throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah. And I really do believe that this is going to be a film that's going to stay in the film history books and it's going to keep being discussed and people are going to keep breaking it down because there's just so many yeah. ways to interpret it. I mean, we've we've touched on the main themes here, like what sort of everyone is is crowding around and, and discussing, and we've provided our own personal uh, take on it. But you know, um, I, I was mentioning earlier this week that Questlove posted a little mini review on Instagram about what he thought of the movie based on his personal experience, and he looks at it as the the story of every famous successful artist anyone who has found success in art should be able to relate to this movie as a huge internal and and external struggle of wanting to dedicate yourself to your art and devote yourself to your fans and the people that adore your work and having to sacrifice your family and yeah. and your your children and your wife and and all of this stuff that should be important to you, but you can't possibly do that. There's no real balance. And devote yeah. yourself to your work at the same time. So again, so many ways to to discuss this movie. I mean, we could yeah. keep talking about this yeah. forever. But we've done it. Yeah, we done did it. Uh, so yeah, let's let's, let's hope that uh, Darren Aronofsky doesn't repeat the same process with J Law. Yeah, I I just I think that. It would be great to keep having these sort of movies released, you know. Mm-hmm. Quick, quick take. Did you find this movie pretentious? Oh my gosh. <sighs> it's tough, okay. man. Okay. I think there are pretentious aspects of, about it, and I think that's necessary because of the subject matter. There was no other way to to do what Darren did okay. without it being. I completely agree. Just because he's basically comparing himself to God, <laughs> yeah. Like he really, in the most basic sense, he's saying that he is God and he is the yeah. creator. But I, at the same time, I do agree with you that it kind of has to be pretentious. Yeah, but that's going to turn a ton of people off. Well, okay. So the definition of pretentious involves pretending to be higher or above than what you are i don't think he's pretending to be an arrogant douche i think he kind of is yeah. i think that yeah yeah <laughs> so i don't think it's he's like i am god yeah i don't think it, it's yeah. pretentious but i think it is 
douchey in a similar way to being pretentious. But Brett, Brett you have any closing thoughts on Mother? Um, this this whole idea of looking at it in a vacuum and looking at the surface level aspects of it. I think if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, it's really a story about a toxic relationship more so than a home invasion. Mm. I think it's, it's yes, Jen- Jennifer Lawrence point. trying to connect with this being person. abused. She's she's being abused this whole time. She ends up being physically abused. All all these men in this house are just a manifestation of Javier Bardem and the impact that he's having on her. Yeah. And, you know, there's the whole other angle. I mean, we got to wrap up, but you you can also think of how the home invasion represents social media and, and, and like Twitter and like sharing yourself with all these strangers and engaging with all these people, especially if you're a successful artist, like I was saying, all these people that want to engage with you. And if you if you post something online, if you tweet something, and there's always someone out there that is going to reply and engage with you, you're not going to be present. You're not going to be uh, there for your wife and your family. You're you're going to struggle with being a, a father and a, and a husband and. That's something that that Bardem did really well. I, I don't think that yeah. Bardem was playing God. Like he, his acting thought process wasn't like, "Oh, I'm playing God." He was thinking, "I'm a poet that is, you know, abandoning his wife for fame and yeah. and adoration and 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 celebrity." He, I think, he held the movie together by far. I, yeah. I, I think Jennifer Javier Lawrence was, did well, but yeah. I think Javier Bardem held the movie together. Oh, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. All right, I think we should finish. Should up. we uh, yeah. wrap this up? Um, so, mother, you know, very disheartening. But what, whether or not you're gonna like it, see it unless you want. You great, don't want to see anything. Great film, really maybe, or horrible film, maybe. Um, let's finish up with some plugs. You can follow We Bought a Mic on Instagram at We Bought a Mic. You can email us at We Bought a Mic at gmail.com. Send us any questions, comments, fan mail feedback anything we'll read it all on the show uh we love hearing from you guys and engaging with the pod joining the conversation let you let us know what you thought of mother you know if you want to give us a a, an opinion that we didn't touch on or maybe something we missed in terms of the metaphors or allegory you know let's keep the discussion going um you guys got anything to plug uh you know you can follow me on twitter on twitter twiner twiner twatter Follow me on the twine, um, the twit, if you will, at hunt underscore mobbly, M-O-B-L-E-Y. Uh, you know, send us some emails. You know, I've got a Snapchat. I won't give that out to people, but I have one. Only true uh, true buds and friends get yeah, that Yeah, you have to, like, send me some insider coheed shit to get my Snapchat <laughs> to get dick nice. pics. Okay, follow... Uh, at Drew Dietzen on Twitter. Dietzen spelled like Diet Zen. That's all. I don't, don't follow me anywhere else. Don't don't even follow me on Twitter. Go away. <laughs> Turn it off. Brett, you got anything to plug? Uh, yeah, add me on Facebook. That's Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> no, but uh, find me on in, on Instagram. Brett with two T's. Nemiroff. N as in Nancy. E-M as in Mary. E-R-O-F-F as in Frank. Very, wow. very well. Like my pictures, but don't follow me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you can follow me at Caldernist on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'll be 
you know, talking some shit about our fucking president. Do we even need to like bullshit? spell our names? Like, aren't they all in the bio? Just go to the fucking yeah, they, go to the fucking just description. Scroll down, like, click there. It's really not a big it's deal. It's all there. Um, you know, we'll be back next week. We'll probably talk about Kingsman or something. I know Blade yeah. Runner's coming, so we're definitely going to be gearing up for that. I'll definitely have seen Kingsman by uh, the time we do the next podcast, so I'll definitely have some takes. Hopefully, I I did get movie pass, so hopefully my movie pass will be coming in for that. Yes. All right, guys, this was this was good. Thanks, uh, thanks for thanks for everything, and Brett, thanks for being over. Thanks for coming, Brett. It was good being here, guys. Yeah. Follow, like all of his yo-yo videos. We'll we'll have you on again for sure, Mm -hmm. and we're gonna. Roll some right now. So see you next week. Roll some. Galbi beef. Here we go. Galbi beef. We bought a microphone. Mm. Yeah, we bought a Malby Beef. Melba, my Gilbert. This episode of We Bought a Mic was brought to you by Galby Beef. Brought to you by Toys R Us. From the makers of Malby Beef.